Thanks, Denny. I have the privilege of being in the chapel rotation for our Cliff Drive Care Center children's programs, the preschoolers there. So I feel like I'm missing something right now without my flannel graph up here. <laughs> but I'll, I will promise not to make you stand up and do hand motions. If you have a Bible with you, um, or a Bible app, or a Bible pew nearby, or a pew Bible, um, please open to John, second chapter of John, verses 3 through 11, and set it aside for later. We read the opening verses of John a couple weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right from the start, we, it's obvious John's gospel is poetic, that it's going to read a little bit differently than the gospels beside it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. As an English major at Westmont, I spent four years trying to learn how to read people like John, read poets, um, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that understanding poetry is not always easy. I did a senior project on John Donne, and, uh, and now you will get a little bit of an insight into how much of a nerd I am. Um, I <laughs> recorded myself saying his sonnets, and I would listen to them as I exercised to try to memorize them. So, yeah, picture that. Um, I did this for an entire summer, and even after doing that, I, I would understand his poems in new ways all the time. And even after a year of this... Um, there would be a metaphor which would strike me in a new way, uh, completely or reorienting my understanding of the poem. Figurative language can be extremely confusing. You get this feeling, and I heard this a lot from people outside of my major, of just say what you mean. You know, why are you being intentionally cryptic? Uh, we don't know what you are saying. Speak plainly, please. And this is legitimate frustration. So why does John do this to us? Why does John use symbolism? Uh, why does he make us work for the meaning in the way that he does? When we read the book of John, we see our answer. Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus speaks in metaphor, and he acts in symbolic ways. Uh, Craig R. Coaster, author of Symbolism in the Fourth Gospel, Meaning, Mystery, and Community, puts it this way. Jesus came from above, but he could not reveal divine truths in worldly terms. Therefore, Jesus used familiar earthly images to convey his message. Our story today is one in which Jesus does is doing precisely this, you know, using earthly images to convey his message, using what is temporal to explain what is eternal. John 2 gives us an account of Jesus' first symbolic act, his first miracle in the book of John, turning water into wine. So we're only two chapters in. Not a lot has happened yet. John the Baptist has proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God, 
and Jesus has collected a handful of disciples. Andrew, hearing what John had to say, uh, starts following Jesus, and he brings his brother, Simon Peter. Jesus calls Philip, and Philip tells Nathaniel, who expresses some initial doubt at first, but is quickly won over. And at this point in the narrative, uh, all of these newly collected disciples, along with Jesus and his mother Mary, are invited to a wedding in Cana. So we pick up in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Oh, is that the wrong? Sorry. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. Uh, the, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Please pray with me. God, we come before you today and in humility ask you to speak to us from your word. May what we take away from today be your truth, and may it sustain us as we seek to live in your love. Amen. This story has never been a particular favorite of mine. Nobody acts in the way that I expect them to. At a first read, at least it seems to me, Jesus seems upset, a little bit dismissive. Mary gets, gives a sort of hint, um, and he distances himself from her. You know, why are you telling me about this, Mom? And even though it's not his hour, he still performs a miracle, which is confusing. Um, Mary is no less disconcerting. Some people interpret her first comment, you know, Jesus, they're out of wine, uh, as confidence or motherly intuition. I feel, again, on a first read, that it, it, she's being a little bit presumptuous or even superficial. She's concerned about the supply of alcohol. And this is Jesus' first miracle. Uh, I'm more than a little perplexed. Aren't there other miracles which would better serve to illustrate God's kingdom? Certainly, if I were writing a story like this one, I would have Jesus heal someone or raise someone from the dead. This miracle feels like a party trick. It feels out of context. 
But this is what we have. You know, Jesus turning water into wine, that's what he chose for his first miracle. John gives us the purpose of his signs, uh, of all of Jesus' signs later in his gospel, John 20, 31, saying, But these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this sign, this symbolic act, this miracle somehow reveals who Jesus is. And it is out of context for us, uh, which is why we always need to go back and remembering when and where this all took place. Since we're talking about wine at a wedding, we need to remember how incredibly important hospitality was to ancient Near Eastern cultures. Refusing to give hospitality or even providing insufficient hospitality was more than just a social faux pas. It was verging on criminal. Uh, Even the poorest of the poor would go at great lengths to be excellent hosts at high cost to themselves. And while knowing this does not make the wine dilemma unilaterally more important than the suffering and the sickness that Jesus confronts later in his ministry, it does lend the situation a little bit more gravity. You know, the problem is a remarkable one. Mary and whoever else knew that the the host was running out of wine would have reason to be concerned. Most significantly, however, wine was a symbol of the coming Messiah, of as divine favorer upon God's people. The prophetic writings look forward to an outpouring of wine. In Amos, wine is connected with the restoration of the Davidic line. Amos says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. Joel 3 says, In that day the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the acacias. And then again, in Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all people on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, a choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. So by the late first century Jewish tradition, connected overflowing wine with the Messiah. Nathaniel, one of the disciples just gathered, has just said in the previous verses, uh, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And this miracle confirms that. It's also worth taking a moment to look at the historical context of Jesus' comment, my hour has not yet come. This phrase is used in the Bible for pregnant women. Her hour is her childbirth. Uh, for example, in John sixteen twenty one, Jesus compares his disciples uh, to a woman in labor whose time has come. They, the disciples, are in pain now, but joy will come. As we re- read, as we read further in the gospel, we learn what Jesus's hour is. It's the cross. Uh, as Jesus enrages, enrages the Pharisees, John says that he's not yet taken because it's not yet his time. As he teaches in the temple, no one takes him yet because it's not yet his time. His time is his crucifixion, his time of pain. And Jesus' words here, my hour has not yet come, 
let us read this miracle with Jesus' future, his future as crucified king, in mind. And certainly Mary didn't have that perspective that we have, but she still would have understood Jesus, you know, in him saying my time, to be referring to some significant time, some hour, which will be painful, but important. Let's go to the passage again, this time with these contexts beside us in our reading. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, we don't know exactly what Mary is thinking at this point, but she could just be commenting on the situation. You know, she doesn't say, we have run out of wine to take responsibility, but you know, they have. She's noting the predicament. As we said before, it is a remarkable problem, more than just an embarrassment. I like J. Ramsey Michael's interpretation of this comment in his uh, New Testament commentary, uh, not as a passive-aggressive request from Mary, uh, but a clue from the writer to the reader about what miracle is about to take place. And then we have Jesus' cryptic response. You know, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Knowing what hour signifies, the purpose and pain of Jesus' future crucifixion, we see that Jesus is comparing the two situations, this present problem, the insufficiency of wine, with this ultimate death on the cross. Jesus is putting them side by side, you know, very different. Michael has some insight on this conversation and track with me here. Uh, Jesus' words are perhaps meant not as disengagement from his mother or or what she has in mind, but as disengagement of them both from the wedding banquet and its immediate needs. Jesus' words to his mother are not a rebuke nor an unambiguous refusal to act, but simply a reminder that the need she has pointed out is a relatively minor one. Don't worry, he seems to say. Whatever revelation is to take place here is only a beginning and a modest one at that. So Jesus' words are disengagement, but he's not rebuking Mary. He's bringing a perspective shift. You know, don't worry, this problem is comparatively very small. We are going to conquer things much larger than this. And Mary seems to get it. You know, immediately she turns to the servants and says, you know, do whatever he tells you. She knows something is going to happen. So talk with me. We've had Mary bringing to light a problem and Jesus providing perspective, bringing the situation in line with a larger story. And now, the miracle, the turning of the water into wine, the symbolic act. Remember, according to John, that the symbols are supposed to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And we, remembering wine's role in bringing the messianic rule, we see that Jesus is bringing in wine to demonstrate who he is. The king they've been waiting for. 
So instead of reading this conversation as, you know, request from Mary, rebuke from Jesus, and then some sort of miracle appeasement, request, rebuke, appeasement, we instead can see it as concern about the situation, assurance of Jesus' presence and abilities, and then a sign of who he is and what he is coming to do. You know, concern, assurance, sign. And that sign is no small matter. Six stone water pots, 20 or 30 gallons each, turned into wine. For whatever reason, I've always kind of skipped over the proportions here. I don't think the picture does it justice, but... And I don't know how many guests, I guess, there were, but that's a lot of wine. You know, uh, the king has arrived. The wine is overflowing. The head waiter says to the bridegroom, every man serves the good wine first. But Jesus, we see, is not every man. He is king. And it's at this point in the story... I'm most anxious for everything to be made clear. No more symbols, no more metaphors. Tell them you are king. And it's not exactly what Jesus does. And notice here who is witness to the signs. We have Mary, disciples, and the servants who fill up the water. The, The bridegroom, the head waiter doesn't know, and the bridegroom seems to take credit for the wine. Um, As a reader, I want everything out in the open, but as is Jesus' practice, he chooses to reveal himself to those who are not honored in society. And the disciples, they respond in belief. You know, John counts this one as success. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him and believed in him. You know, the disciples get it. They understood the wine connection, you know, communication clear. And now I love this because this story, which at first seemed to demonstrate Jesus's distance, you know, with his attitude kind of keeping Mary at a distance, has instead shown itself to be a story which consistently proves Jesus's closeness to the situation. Jesus, Mary, the disciples, they understand each other. This is so encouraging to me. You know, Jesus is communicating in a way they understand. You want a Messiah? I am that Messiah. I'm going to show you in your context. I've come to bring life and life abundantly. Let me show you in a way that you know. It is certainly beautiful that Jesus celebrates with a married couple, and it is nice that he saves the host from dishonor. But it's humbling that God communicates his identity to us in ways that we understand. And this communication, it's not a one-time reach-out. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it's really the beginning of a conversation he's having with his disciples. This is what symbols allow us to do. Compare and contrast me, he says, with the king that you've been waiting for, the one that you've believed is coming. In some ways, Jesus will look like this king. Here we have him coming with an overabundance of wine. 
Well, that, that's not the end of the story. You know, in the couple verses next, we have him uh, clearing out the temple, expelling the money changers. Is this what they expected? Notice, too, what water jugs Jesus uses for the wine. They are the six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Jesus purifies people from the inside out, bringing new wine, a new covenant, new change. There is definitely a tension here. And the disciples are asking themselves, and we in turn are asking ourselves, will this man fulfill our hopes? Will he be different than we expect? And this conversation will take the disciples all the way to the cross. You know, a place they never expected their king to be. And I love this perspective we get to have as readers. We know how far the disciples will come. We know what that hour will hold. And we can see here where Jesus meets them first. At a wedding, in celebration, with the wine that they expect from a coming king. Well, it's not petty. It's appropriate. And it's powerful. So from this image, what what kind of king do we have here? Two characteristics stand out to me today. One, we have a king who is close to us. Who is willing to meet people where we are and take the first step towards communication? You know, for the first century disciples that you know came in this symbol of wine. For us today, communication may come through conversations, images, experiences. You know, people, nature, books. God made this world and He uses it to communicate. And God knows us; He's not leaving us in the dark. Two, we have a king who leads us into further understanding. You know, that's the beauty and the confusing, frustrating part of a symbol. You know, the answers are not given all at once. You know, Jesus begins this back and forth comparison, contrast journey. He is the king to come, but he was not exactly the king they expected. You know, Jesus is challenging his disciples' expectations. And he promises to lead them to his purpose, his hour, in due time. So, Jesus and John use symbols. Uh, Jesus doesn't always proclaim who he is, his identity, from the middle of the party, in front of everyone. But he is close. And he wants to engage us in a conversation about identity and expectation, challenging our understanding of who he is. You know, who do you expect Jesus to be? How, how is he? How is he not? You know, how has Jesus surprised you with who he is? What ideas of God do I need to hold on to, to let go of, to change? This is a continual reflection that we must make habit of. How is God the same that I expect? Different than I expect. More than I expect. And as long as we stay in that conversation, as long as we don't bail on it, we're in for the journey. You know, Jesus has a plan. He has an hour. He has a purpose. 
And that plan is surely more difficult and more painful than we expect or than we want. But we know the end. And, and it looks a lot like this beginning. You know, his glorification, his celebration, abundant life, and joy overflowing like wine. Please pray with me. God, today let us go in peace, knowing that you are close. Let us go with openness to hear from you. God, give us courage to evaluate our expectations and give us faith to hold out for your purpose. Amen.